everyone and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. We are delighted today to have Kathy Zug as our speaker and she'll be introduced to us in just a moment. There are no financial considerations uh, related to this talk. Kathy will be introduced to us by Shane Chapman. He's an associate professor of dermatology in the division of surgery and he is the section leader for dermatology. So Shane, come tell us about your colleague, Kathy. So this is fun for me to introduce Kathy. When I was a resident here, Kathy was my boss. Um, <laughs> and she is now the matriarch of our uh, section, uh, Kathy. That means you've been here the longest. And uh, Kathy's been here for 22 years on staff, and you only have 30 years to go to catch up with Dr. Boffman. <laughs> um, Kat Kathy is a quintessential Dartmouth person. She went to undergrad here and, and really never left. Uh, she did graduate from the Dartmouth-Brown combined program way back when, uh, when that was a little bit more common and did her uh, medical internship at Roger Williams in her dermatology residency here. Um, a lot of us in, in dermatology here are from this program. We care about it deeply. And I would say that um, my best relationship with Kathy is that she is the program director um, of our residency uh, currently. And I do think that our, our dermatology program is the best, if not one of the best, small dermatology programs in the country. Um, when I was introduced to things like occupational and contact dermatology way back when, I think my eyes probably rolled over in my head. I, what is this? It's not that important. But probably the hospital um, has the greatest allergenic uh, uh, component to the skin in all of our society. So I think all of you will find this very interesting. Kathy is super specialized. She not only runs our um, contact dermatitis clinic, she's also our cutaneous lymphoma expert. And I would argue that north of Boston and New Haven, there's no one better um, at, at taking care of these really sick patients. A lot of Kathy's patients are not your typical dermatology patients. They're actually pretty sick. Um, Kathy was most recently the former president of the North American Contact Dermatitis Society. It's only a 13-member society. She's now the uh, uh, secretary treasurer. This group compiles data throughout North America, analyzes it, looks at trends, and you would never, ever buy anything in the CVS store if you knew what was really in those bottles and what you were rubbing on your skin. <laughs> she is also the co-author of um, the best-selling ever uh, dermatology textbook um, called uh, Skin Disease Diagnosis and Treatment, which is going to be on its fourth edition soon. It's in seven languages, including Russian, French, Spanish, Greek, Portuguese, and Chinese. Um, so with that, Kathy, I'm going to let you take over and talk to us about contact dermatitis. Thank you. Thanks, Shane, for your kind introduction. I only wish you had uh, taken me out to breakfast so you could guide me into the auditorium this morning because I almost didn't make it. <laughs> so you know you're really passionate about a subject uh, when you can't wait for your next specialty journal to arrive at your house. And the first thing you do is open it up and you look at all the uh, contents and original articles and that night you're sitting there reading them, which is uh, true. I'm sort of a geek of this uh, topic. So let's see if I can work this here. Yeah, okay. So the title of my, my talk is Allergic Contact Dermatitis, the Macro and the Micro View. I could say this is uh, just an overview of the subject, which it is. The macro view will go over typical presentations, distributions, other things uh, that are very typical of contact uh, dermatitis and things that you should know. And then we'll get into a little bit about the world of allergens uh, beyond poison ivy. Poison ivy is the most recognizable um, allergen, but there are many, many others, and I'll introduce you to those. As Shane said, I'm a member of the North American Contact Dermatitis Group. This uh, work allows uh, for the um, analysis of trends over time of what's going on in North America in terms of uh, common allergies 
and uh, we report out on our uh, allergy test data, which is patch test data on the most common chemicals causing delayed type hypersensitivity, and I'll be talking about that uh, a little later and about that testing um, process. So you might have seen um, some things about contact dermatitis in the news lately, and you might say, why is this relevant uh, to me? I'm a, I'm a general internist, and I don't see a lot of this, but your patients may ask you and read the newspaper, and some of these uh, things I'll be talking about will help you to be ready to answer their questions. Here's an article, uh, I believe, from the Boston Globe, published very recently. Kids get nickel allergy rash from iPad, study shows. And this uh, is from an article in Pediatrics uh, out of San Diego, where a child had a uh, six-month history of a worsening generalized dermatitis that turned out to be related to his iPad, uh, contacting the back of the iPad uh, on his hands in a process called the autoexaminization, which spread the rash uh, pretty widespread on his body. A few years ago, uh, it was cell phones that made the news, and you can see the rash on the side of this uh, young man's face uh, with a dermatitis related to using his cell phone. I'm amazed um, most teens aren't walking around with um, rashes on the side of their face the way the cell phone's used in my house. And also recently, the Fitbit made uh, headlines. And um, the Fitbit, as you may know, is a wearable tech. It's what is called wearable tech that tracks your uh, fitness output uh, throughout the day. There were over 10,000 complaints of rashes related to this unit. 250 of them were blistering. And ultimately, uh, the, co the company um, uh, voluntarily recalled uh, the Fitbit. Just last month, NCIS star Polly Perrette landed in a hospital after a severe allergic reaction to hair dye. And she publicized that, uh, warning other consumers and users of hair dye uh, that this sort of thing can happen. And a few years ago, a severe rash spread throughout Europe, affecting hundreds of patients who bought a Chinese uh, um, manufactured um, couch and uh, lounge chairs. And a number of people uh, became allergic to a mold inhibitor that was put into tiny sachets that were embedded into the uh, furniture. Uh, the vaporization of that mold inhibitor resulted in uh, sensitization of many patients and this resultant delayed type hypersensitivity rash. And uh, you can see on the top there serial dilutions uh, of allergy patch tests uh, to that uh, mold inhibitor known as dimethyl fumarate. And finally, most recently, a chemical uh, which is causing a lot of problems in the U.S. and in Europe, methyl isothiazolinone, which I'll talk about later, um, has uh, been introduced into a number of personal care products, and it's also used uh, widespread in paints. And this is an article uh, about a woman who painted her living room and uh, subsequently was unable to go into the living room without uh, developing a rash on, on her face that was persistent for many months. Uh, recently, my uh, Danish colleagues uh, presented at a meeting in Barcelona about uh, the, uh, their studies on uh, the concentration of this uh, preservative that's in paints uh, being in the air for at least two months uh, after painting. And this is a problem if you become sensitized on your skin from a skin lotion or a cosmetic or a sunscreen and then paint your house, um, you will have the recall of, of the rash if your threshold for making allergy is uh, low enough. Okay, so let's take a step back and just remind ourselves of our medical uh, school days about contact uh, dermatitis in general, uh, just in a little form of a review. Uh, there are two major forms of contact dermatitis. One is irritant dermatitis, which um, many of us go through from just uh, frequent hand washing, especially those of us who have an atopic background, who have a history of uh, eczema, allergies in their family, or hay fever. Uh, irritant contact dermatitis is very frequent from wet work and working with solvents, detergents over and over again. And uh, that's very frequent. And the other form is allergic contact dermatitis, which I'm mostly talking about in this talk. 
So scratch your heads, here's time for audience participation. Uh, please answer. The typical clinical presentation of allergic contact dermatitis is A, hives, B, immaculopapular rash, C, cracking, burning, dry skin, D, itch without rash, and E, eczematous dermatitis. Anyone? I'm going to call on the residents. Dermatology residents, please. Yes, they say eczematous dermatitis. So um, if you said hives, um, you really need to sit in this lecture, okay? <laughs> because hives are not, are not delayed type hypersensitivity. So I am not talking about allergy that results in hives. I'm talking about allergy that results in what we call eczema. And eczema derives from a Greek um, translation, to boil over, meaning to boil over. <laughs> and here you go, eczema boiling over, redness, bumps, erythema, papules, swelling, blisters, and the hallmark, which is itch. If it's primarily painful and not at all itchy, it is probably not eczema, okay? So in your clinical histories, you want to look for uh, pruritus. Here's some nice examples of contact dermatitis. Up in the uh, corner there is an axilla with uh, erythema papules, probably very itchy. This could be um, an allergic reaction to say the most frequent uh, reasons why people get allergy in their axilla is uh, fragrance allergy. There's a lip dermatitis uh, below there, swollen, cracked uh, lips, probably uh, could be due to lanolin or sunscreen allergy. Then the eyelid there, maybe that's from a wrinkle cream uh, with some preservative in it. And the hands, well, the hands contact so many things. Uh, we could think about moisturizers, hand washes. Um, gloves in particular typically affect the back of the hands and not so much the palms. Allergic contact dermatitis is a cell-mediated uh, reaction. It's part of the acquired immune system, although um, it uses a bit of the innate system to set off the signal and to allow for sensitization. The first step in allergic contact dermatitis is sensitization, so none of us are born with these allergies. We, we do acquire them. And as I said, the reaction is uh, delayed. In sensitization, you have a haptin, typically, which is an incomplete allergen, which penetrates the skin, combines uh, with proteins, and then gets picked up and processed by dendritic cells. The dendritic cells then migrate to local lymph nodes, and uh, I don't know how to go back here. Migrate to no local lymph nodes, present the allergen to T cells, generate memory T cells, uh, which then home back to the skin with skin memory, uh, and can respond to that uh, allergen and actually result in a rash. That's sensitization, and that process takes about 10 to 14 to 21 days. Typically, we say about 21 days. <clears throat> Once a person actually acquires the allergy through sensitization, then the next time the person encounters that allergen, elicitation can occur. And elicitation is a much faster process. Elicitation can happen very quickly with strong allergens such as hair dye and poison ivy, but it may be quite a bit slower in weaker allergens such as preservatives, uh, fragrances, and other additives in personal care products. And that's why many times people don't connect their allergy with a certain product that they're using because they may use the product on a Monday and their problem doesn't really show up until Friday. So it's, it's not at all like hives where if you contact something that gives you hives, the hives are going to come up within minutes. This is delayed allergy. The elicitation phase, again, is mediated by memory T cells. And uh, one of the interesting <coughs> things is, so uh, unfortunate things, is we all have mechanisms to um, bring down that response. So over time, we're, we're not chronically reacting to an allergen. In most cases, regulatory T cells uh, come into the picture and bring down that response of allergic contact dermatitis, thankfully. Good allergens are non-charged. Uh, they're hydro hydrophobic and they're lip lipid sol soluble, and they're very small. And I have a book that I refer to um, 
probably several times a month um, with over 4,350 cutaneous allergens. And the only time I really open up this book is when I have an occupational case where I may not be familiar with a particular chemical and I need to look up a reference how to dilute that chemical or whether it's even an allergen uh, to prepare it for testing. This is uh, continuing on the macro view. The frequency of sensitization depends on allergen characteristics, and it's dependent on exposure. So the more dose of an allergen you get per unit area, you're more likely to become allergic, and the duration of exposure is also important. There are also individual factors, which we've investigated here uh, with a project on the genetic aspects of uh, contact allergy including the activity of skin enzymes and the presence of various barrier proteins. Uh, those polymorphisms can result in um, increased or decreased susceptibility to acquiring a uh, delayed type hypersensitivity to a given allergen. The other acquired factors that are important are barrier damage, such as irritant contact dermatitis. It's well known that if you have an irritant dermatitis on your hands, you're much more likely to develop a delayed type hypersensitivity to an allergen than if you had an intact normal skin barrier. And the same goes for uh, chronic stasis dermatitis as being a risk factor for acquiring contact allergy. So the worst thing you could do is put a whole bunch of willy-nilly creams on the legs of a patient with stasis, a history of stasis dermatitis. That's just a great setup for that patient acquiring allergy to whatever, bacitracin, lanolin, other ingredients uh, that are known sensitizers. And the same thing with otitis externa. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the distribution of contact dermatitis. Uh, here's just a typical distribution. And um, usually, allergy starts in the area of contact, and that makes a lot of sense. With nickel allergy, sometimes you see a process called autoexematization. You particularly see this in children where the first place they react to the nickel in this grommet here is their, uh, right beneath their belly button. But in time, they start to develop erythematous papules kind of widespread, and particularly up on the upper arms around the antecubital fossa. And no one really understands that process very well, why that happens, but uh, it's known to occur with chronic uh, stimulation by a contact allergen. In our group of the North, uh, North American Contact Dermatitis Group, uh, we summarize lots of things about the allergies we see. Uh, the most common locations we tend to see are uh, face involvement. Uh, the young lady on the right here was allergic to formaldehyde, and she was using various uh, moisturizers containing formaldehyde-releasing preser uh, preservatives. Uh, unfortunately, one group of patients that uh, suffer quite a bit and uh, I tend to see um, and tend to have chronic dermatitis are people with generalized, a generalized process, um, as you see here. And the hands are another very common area for contact dermatitis. Less common locations, feet, eyelids, lips, anal genital, and airborne. These are all distributions we see uh, in our allergy clinic. Here you may think that um, the cause might be a necklace or something this person is wearing around their neck, but you see the telltale physical exam finding of a linear streak, which may say to you, oh, this could be poison ivy, because I know that's linear contact. <coughs> this turned out to be uh, nail polish. And uh, this is what we call the ectopic distribution of contact dermatitis, where there's incidental transfer of an allergen uh, from one place to another. In this case, a little bit of that nail polish, whatever epoxy resin or formaldehyde hardener is transferred even in dry nail polish over time just from incidental rubbing. And we see that frequently with eyelid dermatitis as well, people touching their eyes with their hands and spreading an allergen that way. So macro misconceptions about allergy. Rash quickly follows contact. I think we, we talked about that. Allergy develops only to new substances. Well, um, we didn't talk about that, but uh, there are many studies that show, and particularly occupational uh, situations, where a person can be exposed to something for a very long time and never get allergy, and then all of a sudden something changes and they're allergic. And uh, patients commonly say, well, it couldn't be that. I've been using that forever. Um, but uh, it, 
there are many instances where uh, people do get allergic over time, and that's um, it's not it's not uh, well understood. Sometimes it's a uh, change in the person's um, situation. They may be handling a chemical uh, more frequently, or uh, there may be a, in some cases I see a um, a breach of barrier like a uh, severe irritant contact dermatitis, and then something a patient is always been working with, uh, has better access to the skin. But in many cases, uh, patients just become allergic and it's sort of hard to explain. Uh, many people think that allergy is dose dependent. It's, uh, it's really not. A higher dose is required for sensitization, but a very small dose uh, can elicit an allergic reaction. One common misconception uh, we see in the clinic is that uh, patients change their product, but they still have a problem. Many products uh, that are used on the skin commonly um, share ingredients. So there's only a handful of uh, preservatives that companies use to preserve their personal care products, and many of them are interrelated. And uh, so a patient may change a product and still uh, have a problem with something that has an interrelated uh, chemical within it, or the same chemical. <clears throat> and finally, we talked about this contact allergy always occurs at the site of exposure of the offending agent. So top causes of contact dermatitis, they're exposures in your everyday life. Metals, fragrances, medicaments, hair dye, preservatives, lanolin, rubber additives, which have some unique names, carbamates, thiorams, alkyl ureas, plastics and adhesives. Some occupations at risk for allergic contact dermatitis, people who uh, use their hands and work with chemicals. <laughs> Hairdressers, uh, florists, cleaning personnel especially, healthcare workers because they wash their hands so much and they wear gloves and construction workers. We live in a chemical world. Exposure starts very young. From being a baby, um, you have baby wipes applied to your skin. Probably 70% of people in the US use baby wipes. Sun, sunblock, uh, creams, baby shampoos. And contactants just continue throughout life from uh, sports equipment. Here you see these hockey um, shin protectors, shoes, gloves, deodorants, stockings, sunscreens, jewelry, nail polish, metal, etc. There are many allergens in personal care products, which I've pretty much told you. The top ones are preservatives and fragrances. <coughs> It's easy to um, learn about poison ivy in medical school and uh, remember the poison ivy plant, uh, but not too many physicians learn about these. Um, this is the world sort of of the specialist. And uh, these chemicals, preservatives, are the chemicals that are in your hand washes, in your shampoos, in your hairsprays, in your lotions, in your um, industrial settings. And they all have long names, and they're easy to forget. But we test for them in dermatology, and they are common offenders of uh, problems. Other potential allergens in toiletries and cosmetics, lanolin, easily recognizable, propylene glycol, some other long-named uh, surfactants, antioxidants. Sunscreens can be allergens, and the ingredients in sunscreen lotions can be allergens, fragrances and preservatives. Hair dye is a big allergen, very strong, potent allergen. Uh, hair perms, nail polish, and so forth. And these things cause uh, a lot of disability, as evidence in this picture of this person that uh, 25 days of uh, lost work. Avoidance of the allergen is the cause, but there's no desensitization available. You just, if you have an allergy really just of this type, Avoidance is the only way uh, to get better. But how do you figure out what you're allergic to? This gentleman had a episodic recurring dermatitis for three years. And this is kind of the prototypical patient I'll see in my clinic. I, I really don't see people who have had a rash for one month. 
I think the average I, uh, um, duration of rash that I've seen in the clinic is usually a year and a half. And uh, six months, I think, reasonable to come into my clinic. But one month, a lot of things can sort of just work their, work their way out in that time. So the diagnosis of allergic contact dermatitis is made by patch testing, uh, unless it's just a purely clinical diagnosis. And I would say a classic clinical diagnosis is a person has a rash on their belly button and they're wearing little nickel snaps around uh, on their waistline or they have a rash underneath where their earrings are. I mean, we don't really need patch testing for that. We don't need allergy testing for that. It's a good clinical scenario. And the same with poison ivy. We do not test for poison ivy. In patch testing, uh, three clinic visits are required in the same week. Have any of you... Let's see a show of hands of anyone who's seen the patch test process. Not bad, not bad, maybe a third. Um, for patch testing, I like to have a good clinical history, a good exam, and consistent clinical features. If I hear a story that's consistent with hives, I'm not gonna test that patient, and that's just not a good patient to be in this clinic. So I really rely on a good pretest probability before I even go ahead with doing these tests. And this is just to reiterate that patch testing, what I do, and prick testing, what the allergist in the US does, are totally different. Prick testing is for immediate type hypersensitivity, the kind of hypersensitivity that results in hives from things like peanuts or medications or shellfish. Um, and that's not at all what I test for. That's the allergist's area. I do the patch testing. So these are examples of patch tests. You, you basically have a series of test chemicals that are in proper concentration. And uh, determining the concentration and the vehicle uh, for this is done over many, many years in groups like mine, the North American Contact Dermatitis Group, where uh, allergens are uh, evaluated and described and considered for such a baseline series based on their frequency. We also often add supplemental allergens that may be of interest either to me because uh, um, I think they may be uh, emerging allergens or supplemental allergens that may be relevant to the patient's uh, workplace. These patches are applied to the upper back for 48 hours. And this is just a little bit about the baseline series. Um, which I pretty much talked about. Here's an example of uh, supplemental allergens that a patient brought in. This might be in a patient with a facial dermatitis that brought in a variety of makeups and lotions and, and that sort of thing. And in our group, uh, the data shows that about 16% of patients will have an allergy to only the things that they brought in and not what I'm testing them to. So I usually tell patients, if they show up at my clinic without their bag of stuff that they've been using, I like them to turn around and go home and go back and get it. Uh, it's a big process and you wanna do it right. This is an example of some uh, sawdust from a carpenter who came in um, and he turned out to be uh, have an airborne contact dermatitis to teak. Patients bring in stuff like this. Um, usually I'm prepared for this kind of a situation ahead of time with letters um, from occupational physicians and so forth. And uh, this is kind of a, a difficult thing where you have um, unique chemicals and uh, they need to be researched. Uh, they need to be diluted in the proper concentration for testing if you test them at all. And uh, this particular type of work takes a lot of time. Sometimes we uh, test, you know, unique medical situations. This is an example of a patient where there was concern about allergy to uh, something in the ostomy supplies. Uh, it really pays off to test to as many pieces of supplies as possible as these uh, items are not well labeled in terms of their complete ingredients. And it's easier to tell the patient they can use the thing that's on the top that they're not reacting to than research the exact uh, chemical uh, back, trace it back to other ostomy supplies, and that's just a practical aspect. So patches are removed, uh, skin is marked, and there's a first reading when the patient comes back on Wednesday. So tests are applied on a Monday, they're removed on a Wednesday. 
They're graded. This is a weak reaction to that preservative. Here's a little stronger reaction. And here's what we call a 3-plus reaction, which is actually spreading beyond the area that the patch was applied. Because this is a delayed type process, three readings are considered standard and standard of care for patch testing. So we have our patients go the whole week without showering, and uh, they commit back in on Friday, and about a third of the reactions will come up by Friday that were not there on Wednesday. So that last reading is very important. And in Europe, a lot of the clinics do a seven-day reading instead of, uh, instead of the five-day reading. <clears throat> The other important thing we do besides uh, identify the allergens on Friday, of course, is education of the patient. This is a critical part. It's pretty difficult uh, because you're teaching patients about names of chemicals, how to avoid them, possible chemical cross-reactions, and possible substitutes. The names are long and the labels are small. <coughs> Finding substitutes isn't easy. Uh, gloves don't come labeled. Uh, shoes don't come labeled. So there are some particular challenges that we have in educating our patients and keeping lists of suitable alternatives. So I wanted to go through just the last few uh, clinical examples. Uh, the first one is metal. We talked about nickel. Here are some pictures of nickel allergy. Nickel was named allergen of the year in 2008, <laughs> pretty much because it's uh, rising in frequency in the U.S. And the interesting thing that you'll see in many of these slides, Europe does a very good job in their public health effort to uh, regulate contact allergens, nickel being the top one. So, and it's been well established in Europe that the frequency of nickel um, allergy has decreased because of uh, the nickel regulation there. And in the U.S., it's either going up or staying uh, stable. Over the year, there have been many different uh, reasons for nickel allergy. Most recently, it's uh, ear piercing and body piercing. This is just some data to show the more piercings that you have, the more likely you are to be allergic to nickel. And uh, you can see two piercings, 22%, three to five, 27%, and uh, six plus, 41%. And as I said, regulation in, in Europe has reduced sensitization and also reduced the association of hand eczema and nickel allergy in young females. The biggest conundrum with nickel allergy is uh, medical applications, at least for, uh, for us. Um, Nickel is part of uh, surgical grade stainless steel. It's used in orthopedic uh, joint replacements, cardiac stents, neurologic applications, and dental applications. And all I'd have to say about that is there are really very poor uh, data on this. The problems seem uncommon, thankfully. Uh, there are really no big, large studies addressing uh, metal allergy and uh, orthopedic implants, and that's something that the Europeans are working very hard on being the first to publish in that area, uh, a big study. And presently, unfortunately, we're dealing with this uh, conundrum on a case-by-case -case basis. Here's an example of bacitracin allergy, example of nickel al or, uh, neomycin allergy. Neomycin is also uh, somewhat regulated. It's not really readily available in over-the-counter products in Europe and Canada, and the frequency of allergy in these countries uh, reflects, reflects that. You can see in the U.S., 8.5% of people who come into my clinic are allergic to neomycin, and uh, in Canada now it's 1.7%. Uh, you might be wondering, is that neomycin allergy? Is that bacitracin allergy? Is it infection? What is that? Um, so these are all women, uh, DHMC, who underwent reduction mammoplasty and uh, presented to the dermatology uh, consult service uh, for a question of infection versus allergy. And that's often a big uh, question. And the key clinical feature you want to ask, is it itchy? If it's itchy, you should think of allergy. This turned out to be uh, innumerable cases of um, contact allergy re related to um, Dermaflex and Dermabond skin glue. And I think what is happening here um, 
is there's just such a big quantity of that skin glue being used, so dose per unit area. The area is undergoing prolonged occlusion with uh, these occlusive uh, bras for about two weeks, and then skin barrier disruption, leading to those uh, horrible rashes. The patients were not happy. Preservative allergy, these are some pictures of that. Over the year, there have been, quote, epidemics of preservative allergy. They started with uh, formaldehyde-related allergy, formaldehyde in textile finishes and cosmetics. Fortunately, uh, the textile associations have dealt with that, and formaldehyde is, in general, not a big issue in textiles anymore. Um, in the late 70s and early 80s, there was a preservative called methyl chloroisothiazolinone, methyl isothiazolone, that caused big problems. And uh, then another preservative in 2000, and then the dimethyl fumarate epidemic. Currently, the biggest epidemic we're dealing with in contact allergy is that of methyl isothiazolinone. And the reason for that is it was allowed in uh, consumer products at 100 parts per million in 2005. Um, it was a thought that, that this uh, chemical was not very sensitizing, and it turns out that it is. And uh, we've seen uh, doubling pretty much every year of this allergy over the last three years in the UK. So consequently, this was named allergen of the year last year. <laughs> Um, this is a common allergen in baby wipes, in sunscreens, in moisturizers, in hair care products, in liquid soaps, in household cleaning products. And my, my first case, actually, I wrote to a manufacturer of a sunscreen that I had recommended that sunscreen for about 15 years until I found a patient with a refractory dermatitis that was allergic to this chemical. And it took a lot of time to figure it out and uh, ordering of a uh, special chemical for testing. And uh, once I figured it out, I wrote to the company and I never heard back. And this is one of our top US uh, cosmetic manufacturing companies. Uh, and I, I wrote a, a very data-filled uh, letter about how they should take that out of their product. Um, this allergen has become the third most common uh, positive allergen on our screening series. Um, which is not a good place to be. It's also spawned a Facebook uh, community. And uh, these pictures are unbelievable on this website, the allergy to isothiazolinone, methyl isothiazolinone uh, community. Uh, there's a lot of amazing stories about this allergy on Facebook. Um, and the Europeans, again, have uh, taken this to heart. Uh, their, their specialty society requested a ban on this chemical a year ago. Uh, Cosmetics Europe got involved uh, six months ago and said that they were in agreement. Uh, I was in Barcelona at a specialty meeting in July, and the products were still on European shelves at that time. And I'd say about a third of the posters at that meeting were about this chemical. Finally, the EU Commission uh, that regulates uh, products said that this chemical must be uh, removed from leave-on products, uh, but they're going to go ahead and leave it at the same concentration of wash-off wash products like shampoos and soaps and that sort of thing. Uh, because cosmetics are pretty much a global market, a lot of the regulation that happens in Europe, we benefit from. Even though our society is not really interested in doing much regulation um, in terms of these problems, uh, we benefit from the European regulation. So in conclusion, allergic contact dermatitis is a common problem. There are many allergens. And if you recognize it, you can start to help your patient. Reasons why I like this field, I think it's pretty obvious. There's a potential to cure the rash, play detective, learn about what people do. You can actually talk to people, talk about their work. That's kind of fun. Uh, you can work in teams. And you can have a public health impact. And I'd just like to point out that our patch test clinic um, really runs as a team. And most of what I know about contact allergy in the last few years um, comes from this clinic and from the people who have worked in it, particularly the residents and students who have worked individually on uh, many projects, which either have been uh, um, given as uh, papers at national meetings or international meetings. We had two residents present at international meetings. Uh, in topics 
And uh, I have two students here, Judy Chang and Kwa uh, Pham, both who have done uh, research projects in contact dermatitis. Judy on a review, comprehensive review of fragrance allergens, and Kwa uh, has done a review of allergy, contact allergies in children using the North American contact dermatitis data. I also have a picture of a high school student here, Emma Malenka, who's helped me um, with revising my what I call low allergen skin products. These are products uh, that I recommend to my, pa my patients with chronic um, dermatitis in order to remove those contact allergens um, that they may be allergic to prior to testing. So that's all I have to tell you today. I could tell you a lot more, but I'll answer any questions. And thanks for staying and paying attention. <laughs> Take some questions, but I thought I might start with one. There is a wonderfully necessary and admirable thrust to have all clinicians wash their hands or use these uh, devices on the wall repetitively. Since that came about, have there been changes in the rates of contact dermatitis that you see, or are there types of those uh, on the wall hand sanitizers that are critical worse? Or do, do they all have they looked at the allergens that? Allergens and do they, do they remove those? Um, no. <laughs> so, I mean, usually decisions like that are more economic in terms of what, what you're buying than in terms of the patient, the, you know, the downstream outcome. Um, so, um, I used to take the uh, whatever it was off the wall that when I could take it off and turn it around and use it as an example to my patient of one of the more common allergens that we see, quaternium 15, which was in there, and chlorozylenol is another. Um, it's impossible to remove all allergens, but it is possible to um, select less um, potent sensitizers. You can't remove all the preservatives. You can remove fragrance, but Fragrance is really popular. It's not a popular choice to take fragrance out of things. So I don't, uh, there, there isn't a big movement to look at those. And um, we have a study on health, uh, contact allergy and healthcare workers. And uh, we just reported out what kind of allergens we're seeing and their fragrances, preservatives, um, and uh, like foaming agents. And, uh, yeah, the, it, I think the big um, prevention move for that would be to try to teach people to take better care of their hands and um, to try to avoid irritant contact uh, dermatitis uh, with bland moisturizers rather than, um, and, and then use low sensitizing products. By the way, I bring this up not as an issue to think about avoidance of hand washing. We need to. <laughs> really tackle that. I was in a meeting yesterday where I once again learned that we are so bad about hand washing continuously with all the thrust that we've had. And I don't know, so I was with Jim Weinstein, and the question really was, could you look at your patients with you and say, I, I'm not washing my hands for you. And we, we continue to have, and Kathy, you're an expert in this, but we continue to have an inability to comply with hand washing regulations around here. I know this is slightly off topic, but uh, unless one has a severe contact dermatitis. Well, I think the amazing thing is, you know, I, I do see a lot of patients, uh, healthcare workers that come in um, uh, for hand dermatitis, and uh, many of them blame this, the Purell, and I don't think I've had one patient allergic to Purell. Um, it's usually liquid hand wash on the shelf if they're allergic to that. Or gloves. <laughs> Kathy, nice talk. I just had a question about the airborne allergens you spoke of. We, we all learned in medical school about the relationship of atopic dermatitis and asthma, but given the fact that the, the lung mucosa will be exposed to these airborne allergens, are, are you, are you, do you see any association between people with maybe severe contact dermatitis so, so I'll tell you a little story. I'll tell you a little story about that. Um, in general, I would say no. 
These are not respiratory allergens. Um, and that's a classic teaching, but um, I think there are definitely well-documented cases of where people get sensitized in their skin and then start having respiratory problems. And uh, case in point, I had a hairdresser with severe hand dermatitis and uh, tested her. She was allergic to the methyl isothiazolinone, which is widespread in hair products. You almost can't buy a hair, hair product without it. And um, she was disabled. And uh, slowly, about three months after testing, she started to get better, went back to work, went into the salon, and had all sorts of respiratory problems, wound up in the ED with you know, a hive-like reaction, which usually don't have delayed type hypersensitivity and immediate hypersensitivity at the same time. And I don't know whether she acquired immediate hypersensitivity or if this is all delayed type hypersensitivity, but yes, you can have respiratory problems. I really enjoyed your talk, Kathy. I wonder when you were talking about the European regulatory agencies seem more proactive than ours. What, what is the role of the FDA here proactively? For example, with nutritional supplements and herbal products, they're not allowed to even look at that until a signal has been raised of deaths or major morbidity. Are they getting involved proactively in topicals and cosmetics and fragrances, or only hands off until you raise a signal that there's a problem with a chemical? Yeah, I think it's very hands off. Um, and I mean, we've known for a long time that nickel is a problem. And um, I think it's more of a industry battle, um, industry wanting no regulation. Um, the, in the U.S., the regulatory um, business is um, under the auspices of the Cosmetics, uh, Toiletry, and Fragrance Association, and they, uh, that's an appointed group, and they make recommendations as to the proper concentrations based on scientific data. There's mostly um, basic scientists and a handful of clinicians, and they just they make recommendations that industry chooses to follow. And I don't think the FDA is anywhere near any of those issues unless there's a huge problem. I'm wondering, there's a, I'm seeing more ingredients as natural fragrance versus fragrance, which I assume is related to some of the phthalate issue. Do you know what natural fragrance is, and are you seeing um, reactions to that? So in my way of thinking, um, from an allergy standpoint, natural fragrances are no bit better than uh, chemically synthesized chemicals. So natural products can cause every bit the amount of allergy that um, produce synthetic chemicals can cause. Uh, so case in point, tea tree oil. Plenty of allergy to that. Um, there are many quote, natural chemical fragrance ingredients, rose oil, um, lavender, um, vanilla, um, all the various constituents that are in uh, balsam of Peru, abetic acid. Um, the, the list is actually very long of sort of natural chemicals that are known sensitizers. So you're not getting anything, quote, less allergenic. Would you comment on the difficulty of diagnosis and treatment of contact dermatitis with concomitant secondary infection? Um, well, that's a very common problem because patients are scratching a lot and you know bringing germs from their fingernails to their skin. Um, and uh, I guess my my approach to that is. Try, uh, try to remove the bacitracin and the neomycin. Uh, use just good hand washing and wash up technique with soap and water and um, treat the infection if you actually have an infection. And then the dust will settle and you may have your contact allergy go away because it was from neomycin uh, or it may persist and then you can look further into that. Does that help? No, that's no. not really my question. You know, there are times when I've referred patients to you guys, and um, you say, "Well, there's a secondary infection here," and um, you know, I've had difficulty figuring out what the rash is from. And it's not because the patient has been applying any topicals that have sensitizers. It's that they uh, to treat infection, but they have a rash, 
and they've been scratching and they get uh, secondary infection from it. And so uh, the dermatologists end up treating with antibiotics, with uh, oral antibiotics usually. And I, it's... Uh, um, so um, maybe that's just getting at the point when you have um, uh, an antigen, and even a, a skin colonizer can be an antigen in certain patients, like atopic patients, you can get, um, you can trigger the inflammatory response and make a rash lots worse without having true infection. Um, a sort of the super antigen uh, trigger that you may never be able to control a dermatitis unless you get rid of that um, that bug. So I don't know if that answers your question. It's a, it's a piece of the magnification of the inflammatory response. So when the patient is in there suffering from a diffuse rash, um, antibiotics sometimes are used because of the additional trigger of staph um, in augmenting their eczematous problem. Thanks, Kathy. That was really interesting. I'm going to ask a why question, and I, I don't know if it's answerable, but why is it that some people have these problems and other people don't? Is there, what do we know about the host or the timing of exposure or um, whether reactions tend to cluster in some people and other people go through life? without. Yeah, some people go through life and never really get allergic to anything. I mean, it's amazing what we all put on our skin, and most of us do not get allergic to things. So um, we just completed a study, which was about a three-year study, um, taking blood samples from patients with certain allergens, particularly patients um, who had polysensitization, meaning they were allergic to multiple chemicals. And um, our study is looking at various enzymes in the skin that metabolize those chemicals and uh, various proteins in the skin that may either block the chemicals from getting through the skin um, or uh, bind with them differently. So um, the best known story so far is um, a skin pro protein called filaggrin. And if filaggrin is a barrier protein in the skin and um, it actually is sort of a sink for nickel, so um, it binds up nickel. So um, if you're, uh, you have a flagrant mutation, you don't bind the nickel that well, and it can penetrate your skin better, you're more likely to be allergic. So that's the best known example of a genetic reason. Most, uh, most things, I, I think, you know, are a combination of genetics and environment. And you, know, you can see the environment in Canada where they removed the, the allergen uh, neomycin out of their over-the-counter preparations, and they just don't see much allergy to it anymore. So the cultural environment, the regulatory environment, the exposure environment, I think is way more important than the genetic environment. So Kathy, I don't know if I can get a subscription to this, because you've opened our eyes now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to start reading this tonight. It's monthly. It's monthly. <laughs> thank you so much for opening our eyes.